You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. Hi, you guys. It is so fun to see you. I am Boaster and Brady. My title changed this year, so I wanted to check and see what it is that I do around this place at this point. I'm a speaking pastor here. That's good to know. Um, that's... I'm speaking. Um, <laughs> it's so fun to just kind of see winter finally sort of land here in Bend. It's so fun. If you're watching from Florida, I don't know what to say to you. I don't, I'm not jealous. Whatever. Do your thing on your deck with your stuff. It's fine. Um, it's good. It's, Bend is good in the winter. Um, I have been studying recently the life of Dante. Um, not the poet Dante with an E, but the Dante with an I, who was a cosmographer. Anyone know what a cosmographer is? Nobody? This is exciting. Yes, stars and maps. And so he was really known, he developed a little instrument that they used to kind of measure planets and things, but also he was a brilliant map maker. And back in the 16th century Italy, that could make you a rock star. Like that made you cool, being a mathematician, that was a cool thing to be, it's not as much now, but it was then, and Dante was, was at the pinnacle of his career when Pope Gregory XIII commissioned him to, to paint the uh, hallway ceiling of what would become in the Vatican, the Gallery of Maps. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. You'll find it online and it's just this luminous hallway and the, the ceiling is just filled with maps of Italy. And it, so Dante accom accomplished this in two years. He didn't paint them, but he, he created them and then commissioned people to paint them. So he accomplished it in two years and that's not the big news. The big news is that he accomplished making maps of Italy on horseback. That's all he did was ride the country on horseback with one primitive little measuring tool. And from that, he created maps that turned out to be 80% accurate. With just such a limited range of vision, Dante created these maps that are really pretty accurate and so beautiful. But I will tell you this, I went to Florence a couple of years ago. Italy's one of my favorite places. And when I needed to get around there, I didn't use one of Dante's maps. I used my GPS because 80% is not good enough when you've got to get to a restaurant for reservations. You know what I'm saying? 80% will get you lost. 80% is just not enough information. And so we needed a GPS, a GPS that communicates to satellites that can look down and see, listen, not only where I want to go, but where I am. A GPS points me in the right direction. Really, to get anywhere in life, I need a really good map. I'm terrible at directions on my own. I'm notorious for getting lost. And so we need good maps. But the thing is right now is everyone wants to be a map maker. You know, everybody wants to tell you how to get where you're going. In fact, I would argue everyone wants to tell you how to get where they want you to go. Right now in our political climate, people, they want to tell you where you should go and where you should go coincidentally always lands smack dab in the middle of where they are. And so we could listen to all the opinions. We have never had access to more opinions in our lives. We are inundated with opinions. In fact, yesterday while I was studying for this message, my husband was on his phone catching up on social media, and I realized he was getting crabbier and crabbier, and that is not like him, and I was like, what is wrong? And he said, I am just exhausted by opinions. I just can't read everyone's opinions 
today. It's exhausting me. And I think that we are looking for who do we listen to when we want to build a life that looks like Jesus? Who do we listen to? Who do we listen to? Because they're, they're like, people will tell you how to make a million dollars in three minutes. People will tell you how to have a happy marriage. People will tell you how to raise your kids. This is how you ought to lose weight. This is how you ought to get in shape. This is how you ought to save money in 2021. This is how you ought to survive a pandemic. Everyone will tell you where to go, but who do we listen to? Because I'm telling you what, a lot of them are wrong. A lot of them are just out on horseback surveying a little bit of swampland and telling you this is how you ought to cross it. And so how do we listen to a voice that knows not only where we want to go, but where we are and what will make us happiest? I think today we're going to look, in fact, for the next six weeks, we're going to look at one of the most beautiful texts, and it is difficult I'm not going to lie. In fact, I'm going to be the one who tells you the truth right up front. This is not easy. But it is the most beautiful map for a beautiful life that we'll find anywhere. And so when we're looking at who to listen to, I learned to ask myself two questions. Like especially when the pandemic started and we were wondering what is going on and what does this look like? And I have um, elderly parents I worry about. And, and so... For me, I ask two main questions when I'm looking at anything, especially if I'm looking at anything online. The first one is, who is talking? Who is doing the talking? And what are their credentials? Why should I listen? What are, what's their credibility? And the second one is, what's their motivation? Why are they talking? Who, who are they? Why are they talking? Credentials, motivation. And so the map we're looking at in Matthew, the Beatitudes, is spoken by Jesus, who has pretty good credentials. We'll look at him, though. And he's got good motivation for it, and it's something we should listen to. Um, <clears throat> I love that Matthew spends the first four chapters. And, and, and just as an aside, as we read the Bible, always remember that, especially let's just say the Gospels, always remember that those are written like a letter to people or like a story. Matthew's trying to tell the story he knew. And it's, it was really helpful to have chapter and verse designations, but it's also a little bit damaging because it gets us disconnected from the whole narrative. So Matthew's trying to speak to you as if you don't know Jesus, as if you haven't sat in church all your life, as if you don't know all the stories. And so it's kind of brilliant what he does. And, and just as a little thing, Matthew is the only one who calls himself a tax collector. Matthew, all the other gospel writers let him leave his past behind. But Matthew, it, we wouldn't know Matthew was a tax collector if it weren't for Matthew. And I've wondered about that. Like, why does he not let that go? And I suspect, just when I look at it through the scope of his whole gospel, that Matthew understands that knowing he was a tax collector is going to tell you something about Jesus. He knows that if he's willing to tell you his deep secret, if he's willing to tell you his worst thing, that it's going to tell you something about the love of God. And in doing so, Matthew becomes a map. Matthew becomes something. And, and when Jesus is, he's about to tell us this, this beautiful map. And if I handed you a map, I would, you would want to know one main thing. Where is this going to lead me? Where is this, what is this map going to? 
Um, if we look at this, if we look at the Beatitudes and say, where is Jesus taking us with the Beatitudes? Where is Jesus taking us in Matthew 5? The answer is a city, and the name of the city is blessing. Saying this is how you get to a blessed life. And in fact, if you look at the map long enough, you'll realize it's not just leading you to a city called blessing, it's leading you on a journey called blessing. He's able to transform the way we go and the way of our road into blessing. What does it mean to be blessed? We, we've kind of knocked that word around in the church for a long time and, you know, uh, bless her heart, not always, not always um, a, a really exciting term, but blessing really means happy, fortunate, abundantly blessed life. So Jesus is leading us to happiness and he's leading us on the way of happiness. And so Matthew establishes first, he takes four chapters to establish for us who Jesus is. He wants you to know him first. In fact, in the first four chapters of Matthew, Jesus doesn't speak directly very much at all. He speaks six times to four people, but he doesn't speak much in those four chapters. He's a little bit of a background mystery figure that Matthew is writing about. But in those four chapters, Matthew shows us his genealogy. He shows us his virgin birth. He shows us his time in the wilderness with the temptations. He shows us his baptism where God speaks and says, this is who Jesus is. So Matthew is laying the groundwork in his narrative. You're going to want to hear what he has to say in chapter 5. You're going to want to believe him. In fact, in the first four chapters of Matthew, in his introduction, Jesus is called Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, God saves, God with us, ruler, shepherd, baptizer with the Holy Spirit and fire, the father's priceless and deeply pleasing son, and light of the nations. So if you need a credible source, you found it. This is, some, this is someone we can listen to. I would argue no matter where you want to go. You want to lose weight? Check the Beatitudes. I think this is a good source. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus' identity as Messiah brings the full weight of his father's authority to every word he's going to speak. So he comes, his words are infused with divine enablement. That's what separates the Matthew map from the map of somebody else who wants to tell you how to live happy. They can tell you how and they can even give you good advice. But what Jesus says, that Jesus' words are not just instructional, they are empowering. They have within them this miracle working thing that makes it like a missile shot into our hearts and our lives that enables us to do the impossible, which is live out these words because they're not easy. The same word that became flesh and lived among us spoke words that become flesh and live in us. Beatitudes. Um, these words carry so much life. The 17th century theologian Bengal said the words of the Sermon on the Mount breathed resurrection. This, if you could develop a life plan that would create inside of you the kind of healing that you would take into other places and you would begin to see restoration in the world around you, not because of your opinions, but because of your life, wouldn't that be the most beautiful thing? That's the Beatitudes, not because of the words themselves necessarily, but because they are filled with empowerment from the Holy Spirit. 
um, this sermon is designed to give us a clear picture of what a true disciple would look like, speak like, act like, give like, die like, presumably so that we could decide whether or not we want to be one. Because the crowd to which Jesus is talking is not yet decided. That many of the people on the mountain are going to go away and not do any of this. And so Jesus is laying out the life and saying, this is how to be happy if you want to live inside a Christ-centered life. And you get to decide if that's something you want to be or not. Because honestly, studying the Beatitudes reminded me that discipleship isn't for everyone. It's really hard. It's not an easy sell. There's a lot of downside. In fact, I've been talking recently with a team of salespeople who sell, sell a really good product and they've been asking for some tips on presentation skills. And I was thinking, I, I work to try to convince people to lay their lives down for nothing. Nothing they can taste, see, hear, smell. Just because they, they, they want to become like an invisible God. I think it, presentation really matters. And so Jesus is honest about where this is going. It's not an easy life and it's not an easy sell. That's why it's imperative, I think, that we believe in the empowering work of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and his goodness because otherwise this is all impossible. So as we believe in Christology, that's who Jesus is, as we start to see who Jesus is, and I've made you a really fancy Venn diagram, I know you're going to be impressed with my skills, um, as we believe in who Jesus is, and then we also see Christian ethics, that's what Jesus teaches, at the center of that, where they overlap, is discipleship. Knowing who Jesus is, is not enough. Listening to his teachings is not enough. It's bringing together the way and the who of Jesus with the what that he teaches that is the sweet spot for discipleship. And Jesus would argue, I think it's the sweet spot for blessing. This is where our lives come together. This is where our lives begin to have meaning. This is where we begin to see change in relationships. This is where things start to make sense in a world that doesn't. This is what happens when we start to apply the words and the way of Jesus into our lives. And it also is where we see rewards. And we don't want to put rewards in first position, but I'm not going to leave them out because they're all over the place. So the text opens with some geographical context. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. I actually love this sentence because um, Jesus, it's always important to ask, where did he come from? when he got to the mountain. And where Jesus came from was healing a bunch of people. He was down in the lowlands, healing and delivering a bunch of people. And then he stops doing that. And he goes up on a mountain and he sits down to teach. Jesus sits down because he knows he's going to be there a while. I think Jesus goes up on a mountain because sound carries better and all the people are there and they can hear him. And Jesus interrupts a really important job. He's healing and delivering people. That seems like the most important thing. But Jesus knows this is the thing I want to do right now. Jesus makes a choice to prioritize sitting and teaching over going and healing. And I wonder why. And I suspect, to bring it contemporary, I suspect it might be a little bit like right now, hospitals are diverting a lot of resources in caring for the sick in order to get vaccinations to the healthy. I think right now we're saying, okay, this is priority so that we can have less sick people. 
And I think this is what Jesus is doing right now. He's saying, I'm going to step away from healing and I'm going to speak these words into the lives of believers. And these words are going to land in their hearts and then they're going to reverberate out into a sick world. And they're going to be the healers and the doers and the beers. They're going to be the ones that go out and because of the way they choose to live and because of the essence and the life of Jesus flowing through them, there will be less sick people. As his words land in our lives, we become healers. And so Jesus knows this is going to be worth it. Jesus knows he is injecting life into the world through this teaching. These words will multiply throughout the world and bring more and more healing. They'll land in the hearts of some of those to whom he's speaking, and they'll reverberate throughout his ministry, past his death and resurrection, through the early church, through the Middle Ages, through the Industrial Re Revolution, and on up into the shores of 2021 until right now, as we all sit here on our own little mountain of our own and look up at Jesus and listen to those words and say, change us. Changes from the inside so that we can bring to the world the healing that they so desperately need. Not so we can bring to the world the opinions they so desperately need. So we can bring to the world living, breathing resurrection. So we continue the ministry that Jesus launched. We continue healing. It comes through us. This picture of Jesus sitting on a mountain giving these instructions to the people reaches back to a moment. A lot of historians will pull this link together. It reaches back to the moment when Moses stood on the mountain and gave the people what? The Ten Commandments. Moses stands and he gives them the Ten Commandments and these are the laws for living. These are actually the laws for living now as free people. I went, uh, I spoke at a conference a couple of years ago in a tiny little town in the backwoods of Indiana. I, I want to say it was like Vidalia or something, very iconic, like tiny town. And I, I, I stayed in a hotel 40 miles from the conference because it was the hotel. <laughs> It was where the hotel was. Um, and so I'm driving to this little town, and I know that I get there because there's a giant water tower. You're familiar with the giant water towers in those small Midwest towns? And on this giant water tower, which is, you know, flat, 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 flat. So water towers kind of come up out of the middle of nowhere, and you see them from everywhere. And on this water tower, written in giant bright blue letters, are the Ten Commandments. So as you drive into their town, you are met with, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not have any gods before me. <laughs> and while it's truth, it's not the most welcoming way to enter a town. Thou shalt not. I mean, I would like put, put it on the door of my house. Probably not the most welcoming way. And so we see the Ten Commandments as something very restrictive. These are the laws. These are the things you cannot do. But actually, when we look at this group of people, that are set free from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, not one soul of those almost a million people, not one soul has tasted one free breath. They don't know anyone who's known one free day. They, not their moms, not their dads, not their grandparents. They don't know what a free life looks like. And so without the Ten Commandments, which establish boundaries, boundaries like um, don't covet, uh, we could restate that you are free to enjoy your possessions and work for more if you want them, 
But when you start to covet your neighbor's possessions, our society will become sick, as will your soul. So these are the restrictions or the boundaries that enable a free life and a healthy society. These are the, the restrictions that will give way to purpose and life and health for the, for the people of Israel. Um, they, they have marched out of Egypt and away from their masters and their workload and their allegiances that have served them in captivity. And they need to know a new way of living because without these commandments, they will become a different not the free word, F word, the other word, which is feral. They'll become feral. So <clears throat> my husband and I recently got a new puppy. Has Steve been talking about his puppy recently? Is this just like puppy-centric now? I don't know. A gratuitous puppy pick here, please. Could we just see? That's my puppy. Um, I know. Her name is Piper. She's... Um, uh, Bernice Moundog, and so um, we love her. We love her an obnoxious amount. We are those people, and I'm embarrassed to say it, but still, she's our legacy. She's <laughs> we have 10 kids, and this is our <laughs> legacy. Um, and so we brought her home, and she was raised with 18. She had a litter of 18, a world record-setting litter. <clears throat> She's one of 18 equally cute puppies. And she, so when we brought her home, we have had to teach her what it looks like to live free in our home. And in order to teach her what freedom looks like, you know what we've done? Restrict, restrict, restrict. You got to start small. Sister lives in a crate. She walks on a leash. We don't trust her. With it, we, you know, when the grandkids are around, we keep her super close because we want the grandkids to have a good experience with a dog because their experience with Piper is going to establish how they feel about all dogs. So we want to restrict Piper's freedom, not because we don't love her, but because we do. And because we don't just want to keep her safe and healthy, we want to make her a safe and healthy reflection of dogs in her world. We want to make her a safe, healthy addition to the world. That's what it means to live restricted. And I had this little vision of Jesus teaching the crowd this, this thing of saying, this is how you're blessed. This is because remember in John 8, where Jesus says to the disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And whoever knows the truth will be free indeed. Free indeed, that means emphatically, wildly free. So Jesus comes to make us emphatically, wildly free, but not feral. And so I had this vision of Jesus sitting and teaching his disciples and seeing them like little cute puppies and thinking, life is going to be hard. Don't bite. Because what you take into the world is going to be what people see of who I am. And you get bit by one Christian it establishes what you believe about the Christ that we follow. And so restrictions are good for us. Restrictions are, are really hard, but really good for us. And so Jesus gives us the Beatitudes as a map to a free, abundant life, which will also become a beautiful addition to our broken, bleeding world. I truly believe the Beatitudes perfectly reflect the core values of Jesus and the way he wants us to show up for ourselves and for those around us. But the choice really is ours. And we could sit in these next six weeks and we could listen and learn and we could take copious notes and we could know, 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 we could memorize. We could know all there is to know about the Beatitudes and never let them change us. We could listen and listen and listen and never become 
become, become the thing that Jesus wants us to become, we could miss the point altogether. Because the point is, if these words truly breathe resurrection, they breathe it through us. That's the point. The Sermon on the Mount is the home to the Beatitudes. And so Jesus begins his message with the Beatitudes, and he ends his message like this, which as a communications person, this is kind of a terrible, terrible close. But I'm going to give it because Jesus did it, and so I'm going to just sign on to this. Jesus says to them at the very end of all that he's instructed them, at the end of chapter 7 now, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And I know that's really a bummer of a way to end a message, but I think it was pretty intentional on Jesus' part. Listening is not the map to blessing. Doing is not the map to blessing. Listening and doing is the map. That's the key to building a life that will survive the storms and breathe resurrection into our world. And the thing is, for someone, somewhere, your life will become a map. I've told you before about my husband's journey with ALS. He was diagnosed in 2010, and it was such a, I remember the first month of it was just such a mind-spinning, numbing, confusing time, and I didn't know anything about ALS, and I, I just didn't know like what was, which end was up or where we were going. And somebody connected me to a woman whose husband had died about five years earlier, and he had had ALS for a long time, and had really walked that journey out, and she, she said, you should talk to Lucy. You should just talk to her and see. And I honestly didn't really want to. I was so overwhelmed already. And I was just afraid of, of getting too many opinions and too much input and whatever. But she called me one day, especially when I was, and I happened to be really desperate. And so I talked with her and, and she was so lovely and wonderful and warm. And, and I asked her, what would you do differently? Looking back, what would you do differently? And she laughed and she said, oh, Bo, I would only have time to tell you what I did right. <laughs> she goes, I don't even have time to tell you what I did, what I wish I would have done differently. I wish I would have done everything differently except one thing. The one thing I did right was trust Jesus with my suffering. That's the one thing. And in that, I mean, she could have given me all kinds of opinions on feeding tubes in hospitals and how doctors work and medicine and research and all the things. But all she chose to tell, tell me is, you can look at my life and know that I'm still standing. You can look at my life and know that there is a God who will lead you through suffering. Because if I'm going to draw a map for you, I promise you, because even if I don't like you, I promise you I'm going to draw you a map that goes around suffering. Because that seems like the right thing to do. But when I look at someone else's life and I see that God cut a path right through suffering and made something more beautiful and more whole and more effective and more resurrected, when I look at a life like that, a weather-worn, storm 
tried, tested map that I can follow. You know what? I don't need your opinions, and you don't need mine. What we need is to look at the lives of those around us and say, this works. Following Jesus works. It always, always works. The words you hear over the next six weeks are going to run contrary to much of what the other map makers are saying right now. Many map makers are going to say, fight for your rights. This map is going to say, lay them down. Many map makers are going to say, rise up and stir up a crowd. This map maker is going to say, be a peacemaker. Many map makers are going to tell you what to do. But as you listen to these contrary, challenging words, I promise you, it's the way to bless life. Let's pray together. And I just want to pray that we're going to be able to listen over these next few weeks as if we've never heard this before. I don't want to run this through my grid. I don't want to run this through everything I already know about Jesus. I don't want to run it through everything I already know about the world. I want to get off my horseback where I'm surveying the culture that I think I know so well. And I want to get up to his altitude and say, I want to look down on my life and my marriage and my kids and my government and my church and my city. And I want to say, show me the way to live blessing and be blessing. Show me your way and I will sign up. Your way before me, all the other maps behind me. Jesus, we need you. I've never needed you more than this moment in our history. As we look at all the directions we could go, the directions the church universal goes, the, the directions our friends go and our people go, and, and, and the way all the opinions swirl around us. God, we ask that you would come and your voice would be the one voice, the true voice, the credible voice, the voice that we know is on our side. We know that you mean for our freedom. We know that you're here for our, our abundant life and that your words are like missiles that shoot life into lives and that your words becoming us something that can bring healing to a broken world. We ask that your words would work their way around and in our opinions. We're going to be willing to throw out the things that aren't from you and take on the things that are, even if it's hard, because we know you're always worth it. And we know your way always works. We love and worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. You're the best. Um, thanks so much for being here this morning. I love you so much. Be careful out in the little bit of snow and have the best weekend ever.